0: Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyas Jiwa. My guests on the podcast today are a group of clinicians who have qualifications in both design and or architecture. Led by Benjamin Bazin, they outline their vision for the redesign of healthcare during the COVID pandemic and beyond. It's unusual for us to have a group of people speaking with me on the Health Design podcast, but I I could not resist the opportunity to bring people who have a design interest in healthcare. And I wanted to start with you, Benjamin. Can you talk a little bit about how you as a group came together and what your aims were in writing the piece that you've done for the Journal of Health Design?
1: Sure. Well, first, I think thanks for having us. And we're very uh, interested in being able to talk about something we're passionate about and hopefully others are as well. So in terms of just a quick background on how our paths crossed is we all have a large footprint or foot in healthcare and also some interest in design and architecture, some of us more than others. Myself, I'm a practicing emergency physician at the University of Michigan, the large academic medical center in the United States. Jamal Sosner, who's one of my colleagues on this call as well, is the same. We kind of come from a similar background, a similar roadmap as we've approached the design world. We've always had it as a passion. We do a fair amount of healthcare design consulting. Do a lot of kind of build projects. We also spend time in innovation and entrepreneurship, and seeing where design and health can intersect to improve patient outcomes and patient care. Diana Anderson, who's also on the call again, introduce herself in a minute. Is a rare breed. She is a trained architect as well as a trained physician, and it's you know holds degrees in both disciplines. So really understands kind of both worlds. Of better than pretty much anybody I've ever met. I mean, we've worked with Diana and presented national, national, international conferences previously. Jamal and I have. And so we've interfaced before and always kept in touch. And so she, her perspective seemed very valuable to us. So we kind of brought her on board early. Shalini Kota is also on the call. She's a medical student in the University of Toledo, but she is also an a, uh, a evolving mind in design and healthcare as she experiences uh, her healthcare career from an early stage we'll talk about it maybe as we go on the podcast, but she actually came up with an idea for one of our innovative countermeasures to COVID, which is a negative pressure tent and helmet, which helps protect us from the patient's aerosols during aerosol generating procedures. So has already kind of got her feet wet in the design space and the healthcare space. And then last, but certainly not least, is Bella Shaw, who's one of Jamal and I recently former residents. She graduated a few months ago from our residency program. She's also a trained emergency physician. Who has a previous life as a graphic designer and has always straddled the world of design and healthcare, and also has just some great thoughts and great ideas. And so, all of us really have a foot in both worlds. And with COVID, as we're all in healthcare and practicing physicians, really realized there are lots of opportunities for a lot of reactive countermeasures. But what if our design, we put on design hats and really use a prospective approach and that strategic approach to this, a very prospective thinking ahead, how could we have used design thinking to really mitigate some of the challenges we've had with the COVID pandemic, caring for patients, caring for each other, reducing disease transmission, you know, improving morale, just being more prepared in pandemic surge planning and the public health crisis we're finding ourselves in internationally now. But that's kind of where we come from and I think in how we've approached this.
0: So to cut to the chase... You're all doctors, and yet you're involved in design. And I was very interested to hear that you felt that a design approach might have helped us in this situation. Now, the classic thing is, if you're going to have a problem, you don't want to start from where we're at at the moment, because we are clearly right in the middle of this crisis. But if you were to look back and think, we had SARS, we've had other pandemics in the past. What could we have learned that might have been helpful, particularly applying the design process? so who would like to take who would like to take that question? This is Diana. I
2: might comment on that based on um, my recent completion of geriatric medicine and kind of bring it into the nursing home long term care context and maybe leave the acute care environment just for a minute, so you know I think Interestingly, nursing homes and geriatric environments deal with outbreaks quite frequently. You know, we're no stranger to this, especially during flu season, but we're constantly dealing with sort of almost a a mini pandemic preparedness in these congregate living settings. And I think we've talked a lot about design for years, and now with COVID-19, it's really pushed the congregate living for older adult system to the edge and thinking about how can we change it? Do we need to change it? Yes, we do. And I think what's interesting is we've realized design is a huge component with respect to infection control. So thinking about shared room spaces, large communal dining and social settings, narrow corridors, lack of outdoor space, different types of ventilation that may or may not do harm. And so all of that's kind of come together in the geriatric setting. And it's been really clear that design thinking needs to be there not necessarily, as Ben was saying, just as a reactive measure to COVID, but thinking proactively about the future. And, you know, I'll say that I hope we don't skew our thinking and design for infection control, especially in these settings, but also in hospitals. I think we need to be moving towards a design for resilience concept and yielding pandemic preparedness through our resilience, but certainly not be too focused on only infection control. There's lots of other issues. Ben alluded to morale and certainly visitation of caregivers has been a big topic in the media. So I think the point is design thinking is really a participatory process that we use in architecture and engineering that really leads to innovation and problem solving and I think could be very helpful in the clinical
0: context. And to your point, uh, Dan Anderson, it's, uh, it's true that the majority of cases that we have seen, certainly in Melbourne, Australia recently of COVID have been in the aged care sector, where you would suspect the issue is that good practice was not followed or was not able to be followed because of the way the environment was set out. There are other settings as well, of course, and clearly emergency medicine is one of them. So perhaps we could focus then on emergency medicine and what's the perspective on that? I can maybe comment really quick. So uh, it is interesting. I mean, I, I agree
3: with you, Moyas. I think that's a very it's a very good way to look at things. When we look at the built environment currently, I don't think that we have, you know, all of the all the things that we tell our patients, that we tell the community, you know, the social distancing, the masking the the significant protections that our our public is taking when you look at your average emergency setting when you look at the areas where we provide care when you look at the the common staff stations even places where we might you know take a break and and uh, and have lunch or something like that I mean we very rarely are able to actually uh, promote social distancing within our own institutions just because it's not something that we've ever designed towards. so you know again being a a glass half full uh, person an optimistic person I always Um, I always think of what can we gain from the current pandemic that we're under. And, And I agree with you in your opening, you had mentioned we've certainly experienced Smaller uh, respiratory viruses, whatever the case may be, in the, in the in the past, and you would have thought we would have learned from that. But I think this is the first time where we're having a, a significant opportunity where we can actually take you know the significant challenges that we're under in the healthcare system across the world, not just in the United States where we practice, or in Canada and Diana's uh, perspective. And I think we can actually start applying best practices and really changing the way that we look at things. And and as we had kind of written in our piece, how we can incorporate design specifically into these sectors with an eye towards the future of how we can, you know, prevent things like this from ever happening again. It's very difficult to kind of steer a big ship like this quickly. And we'll kind of get to, you know, Ben and his crew have made some amazing innovations in just in time fashion. But when you start looking at this from a public health perspective, I really think that we have an opportunity here to be able to, you know, incorporate formal design thinking into our architectural design of our facilities in the future to help mitigate that problem.
0: What seems to be obvious to us is that you cannot rely on people to do the right thing always, and there is no room for error in a situation with a virus that is as infectious as COVID clearly is, and so we've got to design for that, don't we? We need to design for a system where it's almost foolproof, where it becomes a habit, where it becomes an automatic response To a situation, you walk into a place and you know that you're going to have to do certain things. And rather than rely on people actually remembering to do those things, it's almost built into the environment. You're nodding, Benjamin. How could we do that at an individual level, at an institutional level, you can understand?
1: So I think obviously what you're speaking of is key. And I think it's the human factors approach, right? Where you make it very hard to do the wrong thing. You make it very easy to do the right thing and very hard to do the wrong thing. And so and from the emergency perspective, again, I think it was, even though, as you alluded to at the beginning, we've experienced SARS and MERS and influenza every year and tuberculosis. And you know these are not new things. COVID-19 is new, but the experience of going through a pandemic or epidemic like this is not new. Some of the things that are new that is interesting, I think, is physicians or clinicians' fear of treating patients because it's so virulent and we don't have the right tools all the time. And that is something I'm not sure that many of us have seen before in our lifetime of practicing medicine. And so on the emergency care side, the things we have seen from a built environment, from an equipment perspective, a, a staff perspective are, we're fortunate in the United States, especially a big academic medical center like we work at, we have tons of resources, way more than most places would ever have. But despite that, we don't have enough ventilators. We don't have enough negative pressure rooms. Where do people, if they recover, where do they go to convalesce where they can't go home? can't social distance. And then you take that and you move it to much less resourced environments. As COVID spreads through India and Africa and South America, where they don't have those resources, everything is worsened by orders of magnitude. And so how do you come up with solutions that are scalable, that are, again, prospective, scalable, deployable, and thinking ahead of time? And so, again, I think you start thinking about what things like, so again, I'm alluding to something that uh, Shalini came up with that we've now built is this kind of portable negative pressure tent and helmet. It's very small, low cost. It can be taken anywhere around the world, in any environment, rich or poor, doesn't matter where you are, you could use it. And it offers protection for the healthcare worker for getting the virus. It offers protection for the patient and that we can use all of the tools in our, in our arsenal to treat them. You know, there's lots of physicians and clinicians that are afraid of using high-flow nasal cannula, non-invasive ventilation, nebulizer therapies, afraid of intubation, and other things because the aerosol generation from it is significant and may infect us and then take out a lot of your healthcare workforce. And so thinking from a design perspective, which really design thinking, again, is de-siloing all this expertise. It's taking all the knowledge of the engineers, the architects, the designers, the physicians, the clinicians, the healthcare workers, and putting them all together and thinking out of a common problem with a common solution. And so again, I think the design thinking approach doesn't have to be big and fancy. It can just be this multidisciplinary approach to identifying the problem at hand of something that is deployable, scalable, and solves a fear, a a, you know, a limitation, or anything else. So, you know, we can think from the micro to the macro level. Micro being something like this tent or the helmet. You know, the macro level being uh, field hospitals and negative pressure rooms and novel ventilators and places for people to convalesce and new systems of care design. So there really is a whole continuum where design thinking can really span the number of interventions and mitigation strategies we can come up with. So and then as I've been working with Shalini and the helmet in the tent and Bell and I have had lots of conversations about how design can improve healthcare delivery. And Jamal and I work together daily on thinking about this. And Diana has a great worldly perspective. I just think there's lots of interest. And there's a few of us who are really thinking about this actively and figuring out how can we desilo ourselves just out of healthcare? Start thinking with our design colleagues, our architect colleagues, our engineering colleagues, our business colleagues, and really thinking about things that are sustainable, scalable, and deployable in a very prospective manner.
0: The thing that's most important about your team is that you are both clinicians and designers or architects. That insight that you bring is absolutely crucial. That when we have solutions that are designed by one rather than another expertise, That often the thing tends not to be nearly as easy to implement and nearly as easy to assimilate into the rough and tumble of uh, medical practice, particularly in the emergency setting. I want to go to Shalini next and ask specifically about the intervention that you've been working on, how it works and why it works in this particular setting.
4: So, the simplest way that I can put it is that. Essentially, the design was inspired by an astronaut's helmet. And in discussion with my father, who is a mechanical engineer, we thought of, why don't we just reduce the airflow? And so instead of having someone exposing an entire room, that whole negative pressure room to a virus, to contain it and reduce that viral transmission by creating a low-cost personal negative pressure system to you know repurpose existing technology
0: in terms of how this might actually operate in practice is it practical is it something that is easy to to do the things that you have to do in the emergency setting um, i think
4: so i think that essentially the way it works is it's like putting a helmet on the patient and so you still have other than the shroud that sort of covers their shoulder you would still have access to IV lines and Dr. Basson or Dr. Nagapen can speak more to the clinical environment perhaps. But I think that being able to quickly place the helmet on someone and hook it up to the already existing system within a healthcare room to create, even if it needs to be portable, to hook it up to a vacuum to create that negative pressure environment is really useful, especially when you're considering transporting patients before they get to the hospital or perhaps moving them to the hallway or a different room and maintaining that, minimizing that viral transmission during those times.
0: Can we talk a little bit about the thinking about, around this? How did you conceive the idea and then how did you implement it? How did you develop it and how do you know that it is fit for purpose? Sure.
4: So back in March, I was home during those early stages of COVID and Actually, it was an email from the University of Michigan's medical school to the engineering department asking for some solutions to work together. And so that's when my father posed the idea to me. He was asking about negative pressure systems and viral transmission in general. And so the astronaut helmet sort of inspired this idea of containing the virus to a smaller area. In hopes of finding a just in time solution to controlling already existing spaces and adapting to the architecture that already exists within our healthcare systems.
1: I might add, Moya, it has since expanded quite a bit. It's gone, we have a helmet, but we also have a portable negative pressure tent, which is to fit just enough for a patient to fit inside. And we've used it in clinical care, again, to kind of reduce all of these aerosol-generating procedures and reduce the potential viral transmission. We've done air handling testing, which shows that despite cutting multiple access points in the canopy of the tent to deliver care to the patient, nothing really escapes from the tent itself. We've done intubations and extubations, bronchoscopy, tracheostomies, uh, EGDs, and uh, MRCPs. Uh, we've done all these things, and we've used non-invasive ventilation. We've used even high-flow oxygen, nebulizer therapies, all the things that we were afraid of using before it's enabled us to use now. So it's been used in the clinical arena as well. And as one of my colleagues has put it, the real problem is we're probably putting PPE on the wrong people. We're putting it on the doctors and not on the patients. And probably putting on the patients actually is the smarter idea.
0: Yeah, that's exactly the point, isn't it, really? Because the issue is that when people are becoming infected, they're becoming infected because they've slipped up in some way. And if you've got five people in the room and the patient You're increasing the risk five times because you've got all those individuals who are not potentially following the rules, and perhaps for good reason, uh, because they'd had to do something quickly and they were on autopilot. And autopilot is our enemy here because we do what we do because we're trained to do it in a particular way. I want to bring Bella into the conversation. And Bella, do you want to comment on that, and particularly from the perspective of Someone who might be in that space and how it looks to you as you consider the issue
5: so I think one thing that's really interesting is with the onset of the pandemic, there were a lot of gaps identified, and these were gaps that we sometimes were aware of, but oftentimes we said, "Oh okay, it's you know one in a hundred patients, we don't need to worry about this we don't we'll deal with it when it comes up and I think What the pandemic showed us was highlighting perhaps we need to pay attention to those gaps and perhaps we need to start to address those gaps before they actually become rifts and canyons and bigger problems. Um, I think with the description of, for example, the negative pressure tent that Ben and Shalini had worked on, that was something that would have been a great uh, help with tuberculosis patients, with measles patients. It's not that this didn't have an application previously, it's just that this was a gap and suddenly that gap was became a rift. And so I think what's interesting is what we've noticed is there's been a surge in this interest in design and design thinking. I've noticed a lot more news articles as have much of the group, just that a lot of people have realized what we're doing perhaps isn't the best way to do things. And I think that recognition of growth and potential and also just personalized solutions and recognizing what does our hospital need? What our hospital needs might be different than what, say, a county hospital needs or a small community hospital. And so I think coming from a large academic center, oftentimes we get stuck in the weeds with some of the more nuanced research. And I think an interesting thing out of the pandemic is that suddenly we're focused on some of these very core, basic healthcare things, such as sanitation, infection control, some of these basics that really apply across the board to even lower resource countries and communities. And so I think I think that kind of overarching application was one of the coolest things that I think saw, I saw come out of this is that suddenly we had some of these large ivory tower academic centers working on the same thing and fighting the same thing as some of these lower resource, lower income areas. And not always were those goals aligned, um, but suddenly, because of the pandemic, a lot of things shifted. And so I think one of the strengths of design, not only to bring a lot of people with different expertises together, is also to help try and bridge some of those common, just fundamental issues that, as a society, we really haven't fully overcome.
0: I think it's a truism, isn't it, that when we've had disasters, particularly or global disasters, we've had huge strides taken forward in medicine. And we think about the Second World War, we think about antibiotics, First World War, blood transfusion, there's all kinds of things that happened when these things unfolded. And here we are in the middle of what clearly is a global crisis. And the two areas that I'm seeing, certainly from the perspective of the journal, where people are taking strides is in digital health, in terms of telemedicine and such like, but also specifically in design and how design can help us. And I want to bring Dan in, back into the conversation here. One of the telling things about the crisis uh, at the moment is that the physical space, the architecture of the buildings in which we are providing care simply is not fit for purpose. Corridors are too narrow to allow you a meter and a half distance between people, people are passing each other. It's really quite upsetting that you can't have lunch with your colleagues because you can't sit in one space And there. You lose that connection with people. Are we seeing dramatic uh, reviews of spaces now taking into account the fact that this virus is probably going to be with us for another two years at least?
2: I think it's a good question. I think we're starting to, to think about some dramatic changes. I think it's challenging when you think about the existing spaces and buildings that we do have. And like you said, we have the eight-foot standard corridor that's everywhere. To extend, expand that corridor to 16 feet or 20 feet isn't necessarily realistic. And that's where I think the design thinking and architectural thinking come into play. How can we take what we already have and maximize that? Usually when we design healthcare spaces, we try to consider flexibility and future change, but it's quite challenging in healthcare architecture to consider what might happen in one decade, in two decades, in five decades, trying to build buildings that may last. I think COVID has presented more immediate challenges. And I think in our newer buildings, we're already seeing a a surge of emergency preparedness guidelines, ways we can think of minimum standards for buildings that wouldn't yield us in this position again, where we could have the social distancing, we might have flexibility, big changes, and not just in healthcare. You know, we're thinking about commercial buildings, schools, public spaces. I think it's very broad. And I think Ben was saying, you know, the micro, sort of the meso intermediate, even the macro scales of sort of the individual room building hospital to the neighborhood, to the city. So architects are thinking on all levels. And I think that's what also made the group Interesting in one respect is we talked a lot about medicine. Many of us are on the front lines, but we also talked about public health and then the interface of architecture with both medicine and also public health, which isn't something that I've seen a lot of. And I know we've had many conversations of how to put that into practice. I think it's easy to say, let's get design thinking involved, but what does that practically mean? Do we need architects and designers? at the table for everything? Do we need to have them integrated more? Do we need clinicians in the architectural studio? And so we we talked a lot about that as a group. And I think what I'd like to see in the future is a change in the sense that design thinking permeates at the education level, but also within the research domain and the professional practice areas. So not only in the pen and paper design of hospitals, but also in how we research spaces. Healthcare design has shown us through good empirical data that space impacts care, impacts health outcomes, buildings can cause harm, there's no doubt, but they can also heal and prevent illness. And so there's a lot of untapped potential in the research world. And I'm excited about possible collaborations with medicine and design and public health to try to better understand that so that we can develop these minimum standard guidelines in the future.
0: Yeah, I always remember our previous conversation, Diana, when you said to me, that you'd be on a ward round and you'd be looking around and going, looking at the air conditioning unit or looking at the the design of the room going, I think I could do better. And this is your moment because absolutely we can do better because it's not just about how the patient feels anymore. It's not just about the patient's satisfaction. It's not just about a healing space. We're talking about safety here. We're talking about people surviving being in a Hospital environment or clinic environment, not just that they feel good, but they come out of there alive. That's an so safety is
2: an interesting question when you think about architecture, and it'd be interesting to hear some other thoughts from the group. You know, in recent days, everyone's been asking, and there's been articles in the media. But how do you how do you create safety in a space? And certainly, there's a level of perceived safety. So we're quite, we feel quite reassured if we go into places now and see a six foot mark on the floor, or we see spaces we can social distance, we're not seeing things like the HVAC ventilation system or certain HEPA filters. So there's sort of an, an indirect component of safety. And so I think it's an interesting problem to think for architects of how do you create spaces that reassure people and give you that perceived safety, but also there may be parts that we don't see. And how do you marry that together? So that's an interesting challenge, I think.
0: Jamal, you're nodding vigorously, so I'm going to ask you to comment. No, I, I agree with that. I guess
3: what I was thinking, too, uh, was I, this is a fascinating discussion that you've opened, so I appreciate that. I think we're at a crossroads in medicine right now. Uh, I mean, my experience is mostly in the United States, so I guess I'll comment on that. But you know, we are at a position where we need to make some serious investments in our built design, and that's going to take... That takes money and to bring design thinking into the process, you know, there's sometimes people have a misperception thinking that's going to be much more expensive to be thinking about this in the beginning. But we've had time and time again multiple examples now that we've been part of where having that forethought and that lean inspired healthcare design has actually saved money in the in the long term. So I do think that we need to kind of transcend our our thoughts right now of not spending the money to to do this. I mean, when you look at healthcare right now, and we've been through significant emergency i mean all of us have have at different times in the united states been hit i mean the midwest and and uh, the new york area was was kind of first and now it's you know now this virus is permeating through the through the south and the southwest and so everyone is everyone is equally being being hit but the problem as well is that in a financial period uh, in the united states we're just not you know we don't have the money right now to really spend on significant changes so i do think that this is something that we need to to truly invest in and say that this is a better path forward. Because if we don't make these investments now, I think we're just going to relive history and and have the same thing happen to us 10, 15, 20 years down the road. can't remember who mentioned, I think Diana mentioned it. healthcare. When we think of designing hospitals or spaces, these aren't spaces that are redesigned every 10 years or 15 years. These are spaces that are around for 20, 25, 30, if not longer time span. So it becomes very challenging to think of what the next Emergency is going to be, but I think certainly this pandemic has given us many lessons that we can you know, we can certainly start to kind of design around so um, again it's a it's a challenging time because the finances are low to dedicate to things like this, but I truly think it's it's so important that we want to make that, make that upfront investment to have better space to
0: heal these patients going forward yeah, you're exactly right, and I was reflecting as you were talking that at a time when we need medicine most, particularly in the community, we're talking about family medicine because I'm a family physician, at a time when I most need to see people face-to-face, I can't do it because the spaces that that are built for those encounters simply not fit for purpose. The cost to us, because we haven't made that investment, is going to be massive because we're going to have chronic illness run rampant, we're going to have Obesity levels, alcoholism levels, we're going to have all manner of ills that were already on an exponential rise, now completely out of control. I hate to think what's going to happen when we finally can meet people face to face. And the other issue, of course, is seeing people on, on a computer is not the same as seeing people face to face. That does not resonate with the art of doctoring as I know it. We, we need to really think hard and people will be saying, well, we can't invest in this or that going forward, but we cannot afford not to in the future. Here's something that's in the air and there's not going to be anything nearly as potent in making us to rethink the way we design our spaces. I want to now maybe come to a close with this conversation, but I want to give Benjamin the chance to maybe summarise where we've got to in this conversation and perhaps give us a way marker for the future.
1: But I I agree with Jamal. It's a fascinating conversation. It's very, it's always fun and interesting to talk with people who are like-minded and really trying to figure out ways how to pivot. How do we pivot? And that's really the question, I think. And the other thing which we kind of alluded to and Diana was talking about the intersection of really all of this, architecture, design, medicine, and public health is the key piece, as as we've seen with COVID, which is true with lots of different diseases pathologies, but you know, the social determinants of health really weigh heavily with COVID. So the virus doesn't discriminate. However, those that have less access to resources that are unable to social distance because of the physical place they live, whether it's a congregate living situation or poverty, or don't have access to masks or other things, it really affects them much more significantly than it does others. And so, so the social determinants of health really, as a public health crisis, play into how COVID has affected others. So I do think there are, we focus a lot on the medicine and what are the mitigation strategies, but without fail, we are seeing unequal uh, effects across, across the population, despite the virus not discriminating. The effect it has certainly is discriminatory. So there is certainly a marriage there of the impact we can make across disciplines. I think, you know, if we talk about the future, I think we've identified some of the problem. I think we identified how, what our kind of approach and our, you know, our, our paradigm for approaching this is. Some of the strategies to go forward, and we don't have all the answers, but some of the things that us as a group or a team have thought about is we really start to need to start at the educational level as we educate in these silos. So as you go and get your master's of public health degree or you go to medical school or you become an engineer or you become an architect or you become a designer, as you go through these special specializations of your career path, there really needs to be a focus on multidisciplinary approach and bringing design thinking as a modality into all of these expertise silos of expertise and really have this conversation very early in your career of how do I focus on the problem at hand as opposed to just my specialty on how to solve it and how does design thinking help me do that? So one of our mitigation strategies is to really start to push design thinking as a problem-solving strategy, no matter what your discipline is, as a way to move forward as you start to specialize early on in your career and it becomes part of the way you address issues and problems. I think the other thing is what uh, Diane alluded to is that, at least in medicine, the decision makers at the top frequently may be physicians, they may be business oriented or otherwise really bringing architects and designers to the table and having a, a, a key strategic place at the decision making of the health system in order to designing systems of care and having an architect and designer involved in all the strategic planning and decisions of a major health system early on. So these, again, become prospective. Strategies, as opposed to reactive, just-in-time solutions, the, the virus has really created great stress across everybody and everything in the world. And so, I think in times of great stress, also brings times of great ingenuity. And so, we really now have a chance to to pivot again. So, I think bringing people who think differently into the fold of traditional decision making in healthcare is now is a key time to do that. And again, I think there's opportunity for innovation across. We talked about from the micro to the macro scale. Things like Shalini has developed and we've now taken into the healthcare system to really make a difference at the bedside. And as Diana said, all the way to changing the system of care and how it applies, not just in the hospital, but to nursing homes and to cities and the way we interact and intersect and travel and transportation. Really across all industries, there's an opportunity to learn from each other. And I think trying to de-silo using the virus maybe as the oil on the fire or the gas on the fire to do that, I think is is okay. If that's, a, if that's the excuse we need to move forward, then that's fine. But now is the time to do it. And um, we have an opportunity and we should probably seize it. And so, again, I think people like us who have, who have feet in both worlds of healthcare and design, but we certainly have plenty of business and architecture and, uh, and engineering colleagues and other colleagues who have great solutions and great ideas, but we need to be able to be in the same place to circulate those ideas. So creating those environments that allow us to do that in a way that benefits everybody, I think, is, is the next key step for us.
0: I think we can agree that your moment is now. The impetus has never been greater, uh, not just in terms of designing the future, but helping us out of the situation that we're in at the moment. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. It's been an honor speaking with you, and I look forward to reading your paper in the journal. And uh, let's have another conversation very soon.
1: Thank you very much.
0: The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at the